Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest is Alison Gresick. Whether it is walking the labyrinth or walking along the beach, moving in and through and toward the light of writing is a constant part of Alison Gresick's journey. A writer, creative coach, and mother of two, her words infuse readers with hope and possibility. She is a quiet rebel, a wrestler of angels, and a compassionate soul. Allison, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to talk with you today about your work, both as a writer and as a coach, and also about your new memoir, which just came out this year. Um, But to start, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? Um, I have to say that writing is kind of the embodiment of my values. I have a list of like 12 different um, values and qualities that are important to me. And so writing kind of hits every single one of them. Um, so pleasure, I get a lot of pleasure out of the just the process, the very act of writing, of putting words together and of shaping um, a narrative. Um, writing connects me to other people, both in, you know, my fictional characters and the people that I'm writing about and, and to myself as well, um, gives me a way of understanding and, um, expressing empathy and, and also, um, writing is a very meaningful activity for me. I identify it as kind of my big vocation reason for being here, thing that I can contribute to the world. And so when I write, I feel like I have the sense of satisfaction or um, fulfillment that I've done, you know, the most important thing. Um, And I'm not really sure which came first, the writing or the values, like they they seem to be so intertwined. Um, But I'm, I'm happy to have found writing so um, early in my life, I was, you know, first couple of years of university that I really um, came to writing as a form of expression and not just, you know, something that I was doing <laughs> for school assignments. Hmm. I think it's really important to have that sense of not just what writing is, but also the things that writing does for us. You mentioned um, just the simple act of getting pleasure from writing. And it's important for us to remember that, particularly, you know, when we get into the throes of a big project or we're really struggling to um, meet deadlines or put out new work, to remember why we write. And one of those reasons for many of us is that sense of pleasure or satisfaction that we get, whether it's during the process or whether it's on completion, when we actually have something we've put out into the world. Mm -hmm. And for me, that 
the pleasure was there in the very beginning when I was discovering writing. And I think, you know, that's often the way it happens is there's like inspiration and ideas and you're just, you know, letting things flow. And then um, when I went to grad school for creative writing, um, everything seemed to get <laughs> more serious and um, more painful. And actually the writing process for those two years when I was working on my thesis was um, really quite unpleasant a lot of the time. And uh, I had to um, work my way back or <laughs> let go in many ways. Like the process was one of letting go of not, not, of not being so controlling or, or um, uh, so tight with things um, to get back to a place where the writing was pleasurable again and, and, and flowed. Mm. You... I think this theme of uh, returning and coming back to your writing is really one of the the deep and important threads in your new book. Um, you recently published your memoir, Pilgrimage of Desire, A Writer's Journey Out of Walking Depression. And I'd love to hear more about that journey and also how writing was the thing that helped you really come back into yourself and and move your way from this place of such uh, despondence back into the light? Mm -hmm. Well, the book itself is about, covers uh, about a year period um, when my family, my husband and my two young kids and I uh, sold our house and moved away from Ottawa, Canada, and spent time in Malaysia and in Europe. Um, but overlaid on that story is um, the story of uh, my coming to depression, realizing what I was going through, and then, you know, about 10 years of recovery from that um, experience in that state. So writing was definitely there when I became depressed because I think, I you know, there's all these many factors that go into um, that experience. But for me, the, the key seemed to be that I wasn't able to write the way that I wanted to and as much as I wanted to. Um, I was working two jobs um, at a software company and supervising a residence at a university. I was doing a ton of volunteer work and I was really involved with some stuff that my family was going through. And I just felt like at every turn I was constantly being frustrated and, and shut down. And, you know, I thought in many ways that it was my circumstances that was causing that. But um, as I began to work through it, I could see that the, the source of that shutting down was coming from inside me and that I needed to look at um, 
my own patterns and ways of coping <laughs> with the world um, to, to start to untangle that. And so the writing was both what caused the crisis in the first place, but it also, I think, saved me because it was my, um, it was the light that I was going towards. It was the reason that I wanted to be better and I wanted to be um, healthy and happy so that I could enjoy writing and so that I could do lots of it. Um, and so writing came back into it as we, you know, embarked on this um, trip, which was the culmination of another desire that uh, my husband and I had had to, to travel long term and do that with our kids. And, you know, pretty early on, I knew that this would, was a really, you know, important time in my life. And it really made sense to, uh, to capture it and, and to um, process it on the page. And so I started the memoir, um, you know, th at the very time that we were leaving Canada and worked on it um, through that year. And then uh, for a couple of years after, um, when the trip came to an end and, and things kind of took a, a surprising turn. Um, yeah. Mm. I often notice the theme, the metaphor, um, and the, the experience of uh, walking and movement in your writing. Uh, a common metaphor that I've come across, and this may in part be because of my own connection, is this idea of walking a labyrinth and um, moving through a labyrinth and that very specific shape and form of walking, but the, the flow of movement in general in your words. And I'm curious if you have a particular association with the labyrinth or if that's a metaphor that um, you find useful in your work. Um, my first physical experience with the labyrinth was at a women's retreat, um, probably a year or two after I started um, dealing with my depression. And it was quite a, a, a pivotal experience for me. And uh, I wrote about it in the book. And as I continued to write, uh, I began to see all the ways in which the labyrinth was meaningful to me metaphorically as well, and what it had to teach me about um, the movement of my life and how to make sense of uh, the ups and downs and the ins and outs that we all experience. Um, I think I started the book with this really clear image of uh, a desire line, which is, 
you know, very linear, like go straight uh, towards what you want to get to. And uh, a labyrinth is almost the opposite of that. You continue to go in circles and sometimes uh, away from the center um, and, you know, can get all turned around and then suddenly uh, you, you arrive. And so the metaphor and the symbol of the labyrinth and the, it, you know, to me that also relates to many things in terms of, uh, you know, the feminine, the spiral, the, the sense of deepening and, and going over the same ground, but at a different level. Um, so that th speaks to me a lot, but I also, um, you know, feel that the physical act of walking a labyrinth has a lot to give as well. And so I, I'm living now in Vancouver, BC, and we have uh, a number of labyrinths that are uh, available to walk. And so I try to do that uh, regularly. In fact, um, just in February, I had a hosted uh, friends and family at a labyrinth walk to, to celebrate the book being, uh, being released. So... Yeah. Hmm. That's beautiful. And what a what an important experience to have to honor this journey that is um, sometimes such a challenge. Walking depression can be so invisible, and at the same time have such a huge impact on us when we're living through it. Um, you wrote, um, a, you have a post that I think is really important to refer back to, and that is the 10 signs of walking depression, um, which is, I think, uh, one of the first blog posts of yours I may have read. Um, and I'm wondering if you could briefly touch on um, the importance of creativity and creation in overcoming symptoms of depression and of walking depression. And tell us a little bit about the coaching work that you do. Sure. Um, I think the key message in that post and why I wanted to write it and I think why it's really hit a nerve and it still continues to get a lot of um, readers is that, you know, we have this conventional stereotype of what depression looks like and it often involves sort of being incapacitated, like not being able to continue uh, functioning in family and work and school and all of those things. Um, but that wasn't my experience. I was cl clinically depressed, but I was also still, you know, going through the motions of my life, like um, getting things done. P probably people would not have known or picked up on what I was going through um, because one can get very good at faking it. And so um, 
I think it's really important to get this message out that um, it's possible to be really unhappy and um, still be, you know, keep walking, <laughs> keep, keep going. Um, and so the role of creativity in, uh, in dealing with that unhappiness um, for me, the, the source of that unhappiness was feeling like I wasn't doing my meaningful work, um, that I wasn't writing, that I wasn't, uh, um, fulfilling the purpose that felt the most important to me. And for those of us for whom that, you know, that meaning is really connected to our creative work, um, it becomes more than just, you know, a hobby or a pastime. It's something that feeds, you know, our very sense of um, why we matter in, in the world, why our lives matter. And so uh, when that's taken away, then you also lose <laughs> the, the pleasure in other parts of your life, too. Um, so for me, the way back was not necessarily right away, um, diving into my writing because I was so sort of depleted that I didn't have the resources to do the work at the level that I wanted to. But, um, you know, I began to approach looking after myself and, um, managing my life as a creative act. And so sometimes that looked as little as um, taking myself to a restaurant for lunch um, and just calming my anxiety while I was there about, this is a waste of time. You don't deserve to do this. What are you doing? Um, or uh, going for a walk. Um, quitting <laughs> some of the volunteering stuff that I was doing. Uh, all of this became a way to design and shape my daily life so that it could support my, my writing better when I, was, when I was strong enough to come back to it. And so that's the work that I do now with writers and artists. Um, I approach it from this experience and uh, understanding of the, the state of depression and what that feels like and, and looks like. Um, and I support people in the, in the whole, in the entirety of, of their life because a writing life is not just about the hours that you spend um, at the page, but it's also everything else that's around it. Um, that can either um, detract or support that writing practice or artistic practice. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's some of the most, coaching is some of the most um, creative and meaningful work I do now as well. Um, it's sort of taken a place alongside the writing as something that feels really uh, like an expression of my my values again, um, 
and also uh, really interesting and challenging. That's fantastic. I, I really value that you approach this work from your own experience, but create the space to honor and to witness whatever your clients are experiencing and going through. I am curious the best advice you've ever received. Mm. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is a conversation that I had with my sister and a number of years ago. Now we were, I was at a writing conference and staying with her. Um, and we, we was having another conversation about, uh, you know, how frustrated I was and, and struggling with, um, trying to give writing a more, uh, primary place in my life. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Ali, no one can take your writing away from you. And that just framed things for me in a way that all of a sudden helped me see that um, that my right my my relationship with writing was going to be a lifetime relationship and that it was in my hands and it was my decision and responsibility about what that relationship would look like. And I think that definitely allowed me to take a more intentional and, um, proactive <laughs> um, uh, stance um, with my writing. So that's one that I remember for sure. Mm. And you are both a creative writer, um, both with your memoir and your fiction work, but you're also a technical writer and you run a successful copywriting business alongside your more creative writing and coaching endeavors. I'm curious about how you find the balance between these two kinds of potentially very different writing. Yes, um, I started my working career in this software company uh, writing you know, instructional manuals um, for software. And that was a great foundation in those skills and you know also I think shaped my style in many ways um, because of the attention to detail and the concision that is required for technical writing. Um, I left that job partly because I was quite burned out and it had um, you know contributed to some of the health issues that I was having. Uh, and so since then, that's about 10 years ago, I've been freelancing. And I sort of slowly transitioned uh, from technical writing and editing into more marketing and copywriting. 
um, work. And that kind of naturally grew out of my own um, interest and experience in business and entrepreneurship with um, getting set up as a creativity coach. Um, and it's also, uh, I find it, you know, more interesting, more, more creative um, writing than, uh, than the technical writing. But there has always been this tension between my sort of my two businesses, my coaching work and my, my freelance writing business. And uh, I have not yet found like the optimal <laughs> balance between the two. Um, I, I still am going back and forth and developing both. I, I sort of trust that uh, the, the tension will either uh, resolve or I will learn to, you know, manage it uh, better um, at some point. But, you know, life is constantly changing. My kids are now nine and seven and uh, they have different needs and requirements and we're living in Vancouver for now, but that may change. We have a certain cost of living here that's kind of higher than when we were in Malaysia, say. So um, in, there's there's always um, adjusting and, and reconsidering going on as I, again, like kind of try to design my life to, uh, to best serve my needs and my family's needs and, and the needs of uh, the people that I'm working mm. with. Mm -hmm. And being open to that conversation about, well, what are my needs right now? What are my needs in the future? How are things shifting? And how do we continue to design that life to meet those needs without slipping into despondence or um, ignoring really critical parts of ourself. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the big lessons of our trip and then of writing the book was I think through my 20s and 30s, I thought that I would sort of get things figured out and then arrive and you know, it would sort of be smooth sailing after that. <laughs> um, and uh, that um, most certainly turned out not to be the case um, because, uh, as I said, life continues to change. And um, so, but I think having a framework from which to approach that change, um, so things like knowing what my values are, um, knowing what my uh, priorities are and then being able to continually take my temperature and, you know, sort of observe what's going on in my family and say what's working, what's not working, what needs to be adjusted, being open to making those changes big and small. Um, one of my current obsessions is um, working with systems, um, creating systems and routines to sort of hold and shape, um, my, my day, my, my work. Um, and I think those, you know, that's a way of 
helping yourself ride out the change and and be able to be open to to making changes intentionally because you trust that um, you have a way of uh, adapting and um, smoothing <laughs> smoothing out uh, the bumps um, enough that you can uh, that you can feel um, not not control per se, but uh, a trust in um, the systems that you've put in place. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge advocate of systems as a way of um, managing and cultivating space. Um, mm. I think in my life, there are systems I have put in place that give me a significant amount of freedom where I might otherwise feel strain or conflict or stress. I can trust those systems and rely on them to keep me moving in the direction that I want to be going in. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something to be said for a systems theory that allows us to find our freedom within that small amount of structure to really expand and grow. Absolutely. I would love it if you might share some of your writing with us. I would love to do that. Um, I have chosen um, an excerpt from the prologue of my memoir, Pilgrimage of Desire, because I think it it captures well uh, what the book is about and who I am as an author. (laughs) In the urban design world, planners have a name for the natural paths that develop along the shortest or easiest route between two points. They're called desire lines from the French Chemin du Désir. You've probably seen examples in parks and on campuses. Someone takes a diagonal across the quad and others follow until a dirt track snakes clearly through the lawn, marking the path of least resistance. In my adult life, I had become a person dutifully walking the sidewalks, going blocks out of my way to stay on sanctioned concrete and keeping to the protocol of a helpful, responsible citizen In my heart, though, I longed to make my own desire lines, cutting across the grass straight toward the objects of my affection, following foot-worn paths or tramping out new ones. Eventually, my psyche rebelled in the only way I would listen, bowling me over with a body slam of depression. At night, I huddled on the couch, paralyzed with anxiety, while my mind raced in obsessive thoughts that made me want to crawl out of my skin. The energy I needed to keep up with my commitments leached away. Holding myself together in front of people took monumental strength, but I was afraid to be alone, too, petrified of taking a shower because it meant there was no protection from the onslaught of my despair. Worst of all was the loss of desire. The doctors call it anhedonia, a lack of interest in enjoyable activities, and it's a significant clinical symptom in the diagnosis of depression. In that state, I couldn't imagine anything to look forward to. Things I used to love no longer gave me pleasure. 
food was just something to fill my stomach, and conversations with friends were dreary ordeals. For months, I couldn't muster the interest to read a single book. Writing was completely out of the question. And when there's nothing to want, to reach for, why get out of bed? Why go on living when nothing feels good? So many creative people I know are in the same quandary, pulled in two by these selves at odds, the good girl and the rebel. One craves order and action, always looking outward to see who she can serve and please. The other wants spontaneity and stillness, curling around her inner world to protect and savor the richness there. Both impulses are essential, action and reflection, yang and yin, the in and out breath that sustains life. But with one stampeding over the other, I was pulled off course, down thoroughfares I had never wanted to visit. In the core of my being, where the wise and sane part of me still resided, I knew that depressed was not how I was meant to be, despite the self-loathing voice inside that said, you're weak, you're broken, you're pathetic. I knew I had so much to give. I didn't want to waste my life, caught in the riptide of these two conflicting forces. I had no choice but to look at the damage my good girl act was doing to me and begin to change my course degree by degree. After all, I still wanted to make something of myself that mattered. To other people, yes, and also to me. Ten years later, I am on an airplane with my husband and children flying to Hong Kong. The house we saved up for has been sold. The furniture I picked out so carefully, thinking it would shield me from existential angst, is gone. The unhappiness that dogged me in my 20s has disappeared. I am healthy and strong and filled to the brim with desire. We have set out on an open-ended trip around the world. My tall, wisecracking sweetheart, Sean, our feisty five-year-old daughter, Leah, our goofy boy, Nico, who's nearly four, and me. In a nod to Joni Mitchell, we've named our adventure Operation Hegira after her 1976 folk jazz album, Hegira, meaning Journey, was written on a car trip. Mitchell made from Maine to Los Angeles. For me, Hegira is not just about the urge for going, but the urge to turn the journey into art. After a summer in Gross Point, Michigan, living down the road from family, we'll spend the winter in Penang, Malaysia, and the spring in France and Holland. Sean's looking forward to visiting his Dutch relatives and bicycling the provinces. Leah is enraptured at the thought of swimming outdoors all winter. Nico is just happy that he's finally on an airplane. And me, I want to spend my year telling the story of this journey and the journey to the journey. How did I go from being a despondent mess to being strong and brave enough for Operation Hegira? Believe me, this is, endeavor is taking more strength and bravery than I've needed in a long time. How did I get the nerve to do something risky that takes me far away from the family and friends I love just for the thrill and challenge? And how am I going to build writing and coaching careers in the midst of an itinerant life with two young dynamos to take care of? Operation Hajira has me firmly pointed in the direction of my desires. I crave the color of travel, the simplicity of two suitcases, and the chance to work less and see more. I long for adventures with Sean and the kids and a view of the ocean as I write. I'm counting on desire to carry me when the road is rough. Mm. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What are you devouring these days? Mm. Well, the most recent book I read was Megan Dom's book of essays, uh, The Unspeakable, which was excellent. Um, 
just the level of revelation <laughs> that she is uh, willing to go to, um, uh, and just the 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 timbre of her voice is just really uh, unique and and was a great companion. Um, I do watch a fair bit of television. <laughs> And uh, my husband and I are um, enjoying the the final season of Justified and the first season of Better Call Saul. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, that's like, uh, since I was a kid, I have just, I love stories. And I think part of it is like watching this arc of how people change, like that is just fascinating to me. Um, how you can take somebody that is one way and then see them go through a series of experiences or challenges or, or trials or whatever and see how they are different at the end. I think that's just an amazing human quality um and then also the ways that we don't change and the way that we uh you know have a core essence of ourselves that is the same and also can like continue to perpetuate patterns and um, quirks of behavior that that stay the same mm. in your book you talk a little bit about what it means to be a quiet rebel and I really love that turn of phrase and the way that you start to describe it. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what that means for you to be a quiet rebel and how that comes into your world and into your writing. Sure. Uh... I think that identity or that um, that way of putting <laughs> two different things together um, really comes out of observing who I was as a child because I was quite, you know, compliant and uh, teacher's pet and, um, you know, knew how to follow the rules very well. And at the same time, I had these impulses and these um, opinions <laughs> about things that I saw around me that just seemed uh, wrong or a waste of time or um, just useless. <laughs> and I wasn't too prepared as a child to um, let those impulses out. And uh, I kind of bided my time and there would be moments um, where something would flare and I would, I would speak up. But for the most part, I kind of kept it to myself. And our decision to uh, kind of dismantle a life that we'd um, put together in Ottawa and travel long-term felt 
like a rebellion in some ways. Um, it was going against uh, convention and, uh, you know, the way that our families expected our lives would look and what we would do. Um, and that was, you know, really felt like my public declaration that, uh, you know, I had this rebellious streak and that I had this inability to, um, uh, to follow rules that I felt were nonsensical or that didn't serve me. Um, I'm seeing it showing up now when I'm trying to help my kids with their homework and I'm just rolling my eyes at, uh, you know, not quite seeing how this is, uh, you know, serves a purpose or is a good use of our time. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's still there. <laughs> That's good. I think there's um, something important about having a little bit of rebellion in us that reminds us to ask questions and for me, <laughs> one way that my own rebellious nature manifests is wanting to get to the deeper why mm -hmm. and wanting to have a more clear understanding, um, thinking about motivation and understanding the intention behind something. So I, I think it's a a phrase that really can resonate with a lot of us as we're moving through and looking at our lives and really creating those lives that we want to live for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I want to open the moment for you to share some wisdom directly with the folks listening to this podcast. Mm, I would love to do that. Well, I would just want to say that I think we have so much to offer the world. And I believe that your desires to create and to put things together and to express what's inside you has been given to you, to me, for a reason. That our ideas and our skills have shown up to us because they know that we, we you, are the perfect person to make that real. And past all of the obstacles and the difficulties and the resistance that stands in the way of that. I know there's a path that you can find and trailblaze <laughs> and move forward, even if it's not in a straight line, even if it doesn't make sense. Don't give up. It's, it's waiting for you. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Allison, it's been so great to have you on the show today. I am really grateful that you said yes and that you were willing to share your words and your wisdom today. Well, thank you for having me and for creating this beautiful container for us to have the conversation and, uh, and share it with people. Um, it's beautiful work that you're doing. Mm, thank you. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you at gresic.ca. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You are listening to In Her Room, Women Writers on Life, Craft, and Changing the World. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with Jennifer Loudon, author of The Women's Comfort Book and A Year of Daily Joy. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.